Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Welcome to Close Readings, the latest in a series of conversations about modern poets who wrote in English, drawing on the rich archive of essays, reviews and other pieces that have appeared over the years in the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry and I teach English at the University of Oxford and I'm talking to Mark Ford, a poet, critic and professor of English literature at University College London. And today's subject is the famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats. Although, Mark, when we say he's an Irish poet, we probably ought to immediately start making some discriminations about kinds of Irishness and, and, and kinds of nationalism. Yes, he was Anglo-Irish and from Protestant family, though he would become quite uh, opposed to religion, and particularly Catholic religion, in terms of the formation of Ireland uh, in the course of his life. And he came from a quite distinguished family. His father, John Butler Yeats, was a painter who, who is rather brilliantly discussed by Colin Toybean in one of the piece, pieces collected in the LRB, which cover not just Yeats, but Yeats's family in extraordinary detail, not only John Butler, but also his younger brother, Jack, his sisters, Lily and Lolly, uh, as they were known, and also his wife, George. But um, Colm Toybean writes about uh, his father, John B. Yeats, who was a famous painter who never finished any of his paintings. And he actually started one uh, in spring, and it was of spring flowers, and then he kept doing it, and it became summer, and he had to put the summer flowers in, and then the autumn leaves turned brown, and he had to put those in, and he ended up painting over it white, and that was the end of the painting. Uh, he could have famously never finish anything, uh, while his his mother came from the Pollexfens, who, who were a more mercantile family. So there's an, an interesting mixture of the artistic and the more commercial, which I think does blend in, in Yeats, who was, as we all know, a tremendous visionary, but he was also pretty canny uh, and a, a clever, astute uh, marketer of his own poetry and a, 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 a mover and shaker in London, London literary worlds. He spent a lot of his life uh, living in, in London. He's also quite keen, isn't he, uh, as he ages, to um, imagine for himself a kind of aristocratic or patrician kind of uh, background, which some of his sharper critics thought was largely the work of fantasy on his part. Uh, but that whole idea of, his, of, of as it were, the, the grandeur or, or the impressiveness of his origins and his background, that mattered a lot to Yeats. Yes, George Moore, whom I think everyone hated, uh, and he seems to have hated everyone, but George Moore uh, was particularly... <laughs> 
withering in describing the middle classness of Yeats. And yes, certainly one of the poses, or to, to use his own phrase, masks that he liked to adopt in later life was of aristocratic auteur. And he got that partly through his association with Lady Augusta Gregory and Cool Park and the whole notion of this ideal big house, as they call them in Ireland, which was connected to the the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, the Protestant uh, legacies, uh, which were just, I mean, Yeats's divisions are, are manifold and they manifest themselves in all kinds of interesting ways. But one is this difference between the Anglo-Irishness, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy and his nationalism. So on the one hand, he seems to belong to a, an embattled tribe uh, who were the inheritors of the invaders of Ireland, if you want to use that term, going back from the 12th century, the colonists. On the other hand, he was completely committed as a uh, a poet of decolonization, as Edward Said called him in a quite powerful article from the 1990s. Yeats is the poet of decolonization, though he's, his nationalist ideals are very much of separating Ireland from its uh, English tradition. And yet even on his deathbed, he's talking about how he was committed to Shelley and Blake and Shakespeare and it was from them that he got his language. So his career, his writings illustrate that archetypal division uh, within the uh, post-colonial writer who is mastering a language that, that wasn't his uh, in some ways, that was more his than it was James Joyce's. I, I'm referring to that bit in Portrait when Stephen Deedler says they're not my words, they're his words and so on. But and Yeats, Yeats felt that in a different way to Joyce, but it, it certainly is, is entirely a, a part of the conflict which drives his poetry. Yes. So he's he's born, we should fill in some um, chronological bits and pieces, shouldn't we? He's born in 1865 in Dublin, as as you say, to, to John Butler Yeats and his wife Susan. And then they have a kind of rather shuffling to and fro life between London and Ireland. Yeats is a, a fantastically unsuccessful student at school, isn't he? So bad that there's no chance of him going to Trinity College, Dublin, like his dad did. So he has to go to art school in, instead in, in Dublin. Then he starts to publish some poems in the later 1880s. But you mentioned a moment ago about the importance of London within Yeats's career. And I wonder if that's something that we should not bring up maybe at the very beginning. It struck me that in some ways he's a little bit like Thomas Hardy in that in that Hardy is, is known as, as an, a, an author who occupies a particular kind of imaginative landscape or territory, uh, namely Wessex, just as, you know, Yeats is known to be the great poet of Ireland. But actually, large, large tracts of his life, just like Hardy's, were spent in London, weren't they? Yes, and um, he went to school in London, um, Godolphin Latimer, uh, and I suppose they could be blamed partly for his, his, his bad spelling. He was a famously terrible speller. When he, he, he I think one of the pieces mentions that well the legend is that he applied to be a professor at Trinity College Dublin but he spelt professor wrong <laughs> so well, it's his, a hard word his application was turned out I guess he put two f's in there um uh, so he was a famously terrible speller and he was like Hardy an autodidact to a great extent it's a it's a very interesting connection you've you've made there and while he grew up in London or as well as in Sligo. They would spend summers in Sligo. And uh, he began his kind of first literary career, was launched in London, that imaginatively he was recreating Ireland, his first long poem, The Wanderings of Usheen, which um, I reread last week, um, preparing for this, thinking you might ask me about that. Um, it's, it's an extraordinarily sort of effective poem in lots of ways. It, it, it's 
technically very brilliant. Um, you don't want to read much more of it, but it is does. He was only twenty three when it was published, I think, and it, it is does show extraordinary promise. Um, and it, it shows that his sources were Shelley and Blake in particular, uh, the idea of the quest, but applied to Irish myth. Yeah. Um, so that was the great sort of fusion that he makes, the visionary poetics of Shelley and Blake in particular, but using them to explore channel Irish mythology and, and in, implicitly with a nationalist kind of uh, overall purpose. And he's also a part, isn't he, uh, of that um, sort of f- folklore scholarship. He produces a book of, of fairy and folk tales of the Irish peasantry in 1888. And the poem you've mentioned, The Wanderings of, of, of Sheen, is published in 1889, along with other poems, all of which occupy a kind of fantasized sort of Irish imaginative space in a way which I suppose is implicitly nationalist but only implicitly nationalist I mean there's no as it were take home political message from these poems particularly in fact they seem sort of studiedly non-political don't they in some ways yes I mean the Celtic twilight is is the phrase which is applied to this particular feature of cultural Irish nationalism um, and it celebrates Irish traditions and rediscovers them, um, tries to make them valid as a way of recreating a sense of um, peasant Irishry. I mean, um, Yeats, as we've been saying, was is sort of middle class in his origins, but he shared with Lady Augusta Gregory, who was more aristocratic, a love of the hard riding, uh, the, 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 the peasant, the hard riding squire was one side of it, and the peasant is the other side of it. And this kind of aristocratic vision of Ireland, which derives a little bit from the Anglo Irish ascendancy and from notions. Um, of the aristocratic landowner, but on the other side of it is the gifted, spiritual, mystical peasant uh, mm. who converses with the fairies uh, and so on. That that's a, a slightly cliched, reduc- reductive concept of it. But there there was a sense in which he was trying to to establish for himself a kind of mythological uh, Irish ancestry and to insert himself into that and to create it as a kind of um, as a, as a in in the quest for a, a national culture which wasn't English. Yes, to find, as it were, a, um, a national myth or a set of national myths that would be for Ireland what Homer was for Greece or what the Arthurian tales were for England. I mean, it's a, it's a very self-conscious attempt at a kind of uh, kind of recuperative archival kind of piecing together of a of a national legend. Okay, yes, but also, you know, I mean, when when they stage Kathleen Lee Houlihan in 1902 and Maud Gone is in the lead part, we'll come on to Maud Gone later, you know, later Yeats says, did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? That this kind of nationalist play which he puts on was part of a, of a you could call it, a, a cultural resistance movement. And it's really hard always, isn't it, to quantify to what extent nationalist cultural events uh, participate in or ferment uh, actual revolutionary violence. But, uh, I mean, Auden said, no, don't be silly, Willie, so to speak, and said that was nonsense. But uh, I think Auden may be a little bit... Poetry makes nothing happenish in that moment. That Yeats was part of cultural movements that, that were in turn connected to genuine kind of revolutionary action. And I suppose the last thing we should say about this Yeatsian interest in um, 
in Irish folklore and Irish fa- fairy stories and and the whole you know, Irish phenomenon of the fairy uh, is that it's resolutely pre-Christian, isn't it? I mean, Yeats sees, as it were, the continuity of Irish nationhood as being um, nothing to do really with with Christianity in any of its forms. It's it's much more ancient and atavistic, and in some senses darker than that. And pagan. And in fact, The Wanderings of Usheen is an anti-Christian text that is addressed to Sir Patrick. And it's sort of, you know, he's the baddie uh, who has imposed this terrible Christian uh, orthodoxy on what was wild and pagan and mystical and imaginative and spiritual. And all the things that we associate with kind of Yeats's concept of the ideal Irish genius so we should give our listeners a, a sense of that early Yeatsian voice, shouldn't we? I wonder what, what would be... I mean, the Lake Isle of Innisfree, of course, is an extraordinarily well-known poem. And I think Yeats, am I right in saying, came rather to dislike it because it was so well-known and so popular and so often anthologised and so often quoted. But it does kind of exemplify that early Yeatsian manner particularly well, I think. Yes, and nevertheless, he would read it. And he and on his radio broadcasts, you can hear him reading it. And he really read it with, with you know, uh, fervour. Possibly look it up. I, I won't imitate it, but it was... He really stretches out the vowels in it. And it, it it's very typical in that he, he gives us a story accompanying the Lake Isle of Innisfree that he was inspired to write it, not when he was in Ireland, but when he was on the Strand in London and he heard uh, some tinkling water, uh, as he puts it, and this reminded him, he'd been reading Thoreau's Walden, reminded him of this uh, isle in uh, Innisfree uh, and the ideal of going there. And it's, t- it, it's so famous because it's the first of his self-transformations mm-hmm. in which he determinedly sets out to remake himself and reconfigure himself, and it's an act of will. I think that's what's so striking about his use of his romantic inheritance that is no sense of the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings in Yeats. Each time a poem gets going, it's celebrated as as a triumphant act of his own will, of his selfhood, triumphing over circumstances, triumphing over the strand and imagining... uh, Innisfree, I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there, of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow an evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's grey. I hear it in the deep heart's core. Yes, so that's a poem that I suppose you could say is about escape, isn't it? It's a, if, you, if you had to nominate one of the great poems in the in the English literary canon as an escapist poem. Would you say Lake Isle of Innisfree fits the bill? It, but I think he wants you to know it's a fantasy of escape, mm. like like Byzantium. I mean, why the nine, nine, bean, the nine bean rows? How, how long are they going to keep him filled? Uh, Thoreau famously had his beans, which um, he, he didn't actually like eating. So he's got that from Thoreau. But this specificity is very typical of Yeats, is it? The nine bean rows, not eight or ten, nine bean rows. And so we are aware at the same time time that it is a poem of escape 
uh, th th to the extent to which he's indulging a fantasy, but that that fantasy is itself expressive and powerfully expressive of his own inner spiritual identity or will or desire or imaginative powers. So escape in, in uh, Yeats is always a strenuous thing. Uh, it, it's not a sort of lapsing uh, into some other fairy world like you get in, say, the poems of Walter de la Mer. It's the opposite of that. It's a strenuous, undertaken task almost. Um, and it involves the entire person, that deep heart's core, who is very always concerned with this idea of, of unity, of some bodily unity, which could cope with the different conflicts, the conflict between the pavement's grey and this fantasy of an Irish retreat. And I think that's one reason why it's become so famous that that, that uh, it's, uh, it's it's a poem both of us have talked and read so many times it's hard even to talk about it still but um, I'm still always happy to read it. It bears out exactly what you say about the uh, uh, emphasis upon will doesn't it because uh, it, it, the whole poem is a statement of will it begins I will arise and go now and it ends with the verse starting I will arise and go now what we don't actually see him doing is rising and going anywhere no. so it's it's purely an expression of determination isn't it in, in, in the way that you were saying. And the exaggeration for always night and day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, he hears the lake water lapping. Uh, and the self-figuration of him standing on the roadway or on the pavement's grey, that he's somehow a figure who is being martyred by modernity uh, mm. and that, that in this vision of uh, an Irish pastoral escape, um, though pastoral is perhaps too tame a word, it, it connects more to a kind of ancestral connection with the countryside, with the land, the obsession uh, uh, with the land, which, which Yeats has very strongly with particular regions of Sl Sligo, wanting to be buried at Drumcliff, Torbally Lee, the famous tower, that connection to the land, to particular uh, landscapes is, is anticipated in, the, in this poem. And he, he was also a poet who, who always wanted you to know that his poetry was itself a strenuous act of making. Um, someone like Tennyson, take an example, would uh, the notion that poetry just comes to you in a kind of dreamy haze. Yeats was really violently reacting against that concept of late Victorianism. Swinburnian excess or lushness, uh, the, the sense of a trance. And in, in poems such as um, Adam's Curse, he actually uses the concept that one of the curses involved in eating the apple in the Garden of Eden was that poets have to work harder <laughs> to create their poetry. And that he, in that poem, he compares writing poetry to scrubbing a kitchen pavement or breaking stones like an old pauper. Uh, for to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these. Now, if you are actually breaking stones or scrubbing a kitchen, you may think it's possibly a, a tougher job than writing good poetry. But um, that's the sort of analogy which Yeats often makes with the business of writing poetry. It's like arising and going now. It's an act of will and it's strenuous and uh, painful and demanding. And he wants you to know it. Yes. So um, in a way, uh, what you're describing is the, is the creation of a very particular kind of poetic persona, isn't it, which is characterised by a, a kind of heroism or a kind of almost sort of, well, I don't know quite how to say, a sort of Promethean kind of bravery in, in the face of extremely unpropitious circumstances which constitute the modern world of commerce and business and Englishness and, and so on. 
and he actually mentions exactly those people in the same poem uh, uh, that it, although writing this poetry is harder work than, than breaking stone, it is yet to be, be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters and clergymen. The martyrs call the world. This kind of bourgeois, these bourgeois people who condemn poets because thinking them as lazy and idle. And in a sense, Yeats was a despite his upbringings, an anti-bourgeois poet as well as a poet of decolonization, mm. And the aristocratic auteur was a, a dismissal of m- middle-class values uh, in favour of other kinds of values, which were, as you say, heroic. They were heroic, but also spiritual. And, that, 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 that it, and in figures such as Cucullain, he had a kind of Irish hero figure uh, who encapsulated this vision of himself as um, uh, a hero we should say, though, shouldn't we, that this this profile as a sort of lonely, heroic individualist, the profile that he cuts in so many of these poems, early and late, I suppose, is, is somewhat at odds with his actual behaviour as a man in literary Dublin, literary London, during the later years of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th century. I mean, he's a man who's, you know, very much involved in setting up clubs and forming literary societies and he's instrumental, isn't he, in the foundation of the National Theatre in Dublin. Uh, um, I mean, he is, in, in some sense, a man of business. Absolutely. And he, he, was, he was a doer. I mean, he's, he's terrific at getting things done. I mean, his letters, which are reviewed by such as Tom Paulin and um, Frank Commode reviews the Maud Gone letters, uh, and Terry Eagleton as well reviews the letters. You get a lot of reviewing of Yeats's life, not a great deal about his poetry in the LRB uh, archive, but m- maybe the time for assessing his poetry was over somehow. He was already so canonical by the time these pieces were written. But they all show that the day-to-day business, that, that Yeats was really out there <laughs> fixing things. He was a fixer. He was, at, And, of course, he was spending a lot of his time also in these esoteric pursuits in yes. Order of the Golden Dawn. We should say something about that, shouldn't we? One of the nice things that Seamus Dean says in his piece in, um, in in the paper is that Yeats offers a, a very un, unusual phenomenon, which is a, a writer who seems equally attuned to the transcendent, but also to the mundane. And I guess that that's the shape of his career, especially in the late 1890s, but I suppose throughout his life. He, I mean, he never loses his, his keenness for things of mystery, like theosophy and Madame Blavatsky and seances and all that side of his mind that Auden rather cattily called his Southern Californian side. <laughs> I know it is hard for us to know how seriously to take it because we don't know. On one level, he took it very seriously. On another level, you can see that it worked for him as a poet. And I think that that's where it's almost impossible to say, yes, he believed all these things. He believed... Um, but but he enjoyed the ritual, and in some ways it replaced religion for him. He enjoyed the ritual, he enjoyed the entire kind of performance aspect of, of it. Um, and in some ways, the performative bit of Yeats is connected in his poetry, the extent to which it, all his pieces, or, or a lot of them, are dramatic um, and theatrical, connected both to his love of the theatre and writing plays, but also to his love of mysticism and the rituals involved in, in the various groups which he um, uh, belonged to. And he rose quite high, I believe, in the in, in, in the order. So that, um, in a way, I, it, it, it's a bit of his belief system which one doesn't have to take too seriously but you can see how it allowed him a kind of freedom in his poetry and a kind of potency uh, and a 
it somehow connected with his concept of the imagination as not just a fantasy, but as connected to, a, a, I mean, a, a imaginative hierarchies, which he would formalise in, in the book A Vision and his notion of the gyres and the... I won't, we won't go into all that side of... Well, we might touch it later, I suppose. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but it somehow created a system mm. that Yeats did like systems. And that, that he was similar to Auden in that. Yes, that's true. He likes universal histories, doesn't he? And, and, and seeing things like the plight of Ireland within a, a much greater historical scale and so forth. Well, OK, so we're tracking Yeats through now, I suppose, to what we might think of as the end of his um, early phase, just a, around the early years of the 20th century. A couple of things we should mention. One is that he's, you talked about the dramatic quality to his poetry, and I completely agree with that. And, and part of that, I suppose, is coming from the fact that he's actually literally writing plays. I mean, they're quite sort of static plays, I suppose, by our normal standards, uh, but they are nevertheless attempting to create dramatic tensions between the characters and so forth. So he becomes interested in, in, in drama in, in, in that way. Um, and I suppose the other thing we need to mention is a biographical uh, fact, and uh, this is something you've mentioned already, which is the long protracted agonising, but as he came to think of it, extraordinarily productive relationship with Maud Gon. What do you think Maud Gon brought to the party? Oh, um, well, she was obviously an extraordinary person who troubled his life, as he, he, he put it. The great troubling of his life came from Maud Gon. So she was the focus of all his high romantic ideals, impossible ideals. And in many ways, they delayed the onset of his adulthood or certainly his sexual maturity. He didn't start having sex till he was in his 30s when he had an affair with um, Olivia Shakespeare, who was the daughter of Dorothy Shakespeare, who then married Ezra Pound. So there's an interesting connection. We could talk about Pound a bit later mm. on. But Maud Gon was... Um, a revolutionary and much bolder than Yeats. Yeats liked to write about it and talk about it. He wasn't so keen on the actual uh, enacting of it as Easter 1916 so kind of powerfully uh, explores. But Maud Gon was much more a committed revolutionary. Father was a British a colonel in the British army, uh, but she was extremely committed to decolonisation, you know, in, in the largest scale, but particularly to the cause of Ireland. And she was in prison several times and rejected Yeats's proposals. Repeatedly. <laughs> um, repeatedly. And then his her daughter, Isilt, uh, also rejected Yeats's proposals. And it was kind of on the rebound from proposing to Isilt that he actually married uh, Georgie Hyde-Lees, which was one of the cleverer things that he did in his life mm -hmm. in terms of the last 20, 22 years of his life. So um, Maud Gone connected with a high romantic vision of this ideal woman and he turns her into a myth. This is what he does with all the people in his poetry. He makes them mythological figures. He compares her to Helen of Troy over and over. It's not just Maud Gon at Station at Haworth. It's Pallas Athena in her straight back and so on. So this mapping of classical references onto everyday people, well, you know, people him he knew, was part of the way in which he created a mythology out of his own times and doings. Which is an extraordinary thing to do. It's, it's, you could say, someone like Robert Lowell does it perhaps a bit. I think a lot of the American poets did go to school on Yeats. Berryman and Lowell create a confessional poetry, which in some ways is doing something slightly similar to what Yeats does. It's converting family members or people that he knew into kind of mythological personages, giving them that kind of status. It also obviously connects with the overall, the larger project 
there is such a thing of modernism in terms of what Pound and Eliot were doing in, in the wasteland and the cantos of creating analogies between modern life and um, classical or... And classical antiquity. Or, yeah. or classical antiquity or, or kind of Quattrocento Italy and so on. So all those kind of analogies were going on. And Yeats is doing that in very different ways. Uh, and he, is a mo- he does become sort of part of the modernist the modernist experiment, as Pound called it. And he spent, you know, time with Pound in Stone Cottage in 1913 and 1914. And um, Pound has a very funny bit in the cantos recalling how Yeats would uh, mouth his poetry out loud. And this gives you a sense of the oral nature of his poetry. In the pride of his oi, the pride of his oi. Yeah, it's Uncle William. <laughs> uh, it's not the wind in the chimney. It's Uncle William declaiming downstairs, um, as he puts it. So this idea of the bardic tradition, um, which the modernists didn't have so much, is something that Yeats, Ye- Yeats obviously loved reciting his poetry out loud and it was performative uh, in that way. But he did feel that the Irish, the trappings of Irishness were in some ways imprisoning him or that, that the myths... He needed something more potent than the myths of Irishness. This famous poem, which I read, called "A Coat," a uh, very short poem, which um, is a good example of how rhetorically uh, he could jettison rhetoric, but at the same time make brilliant rhetoric out of the process of seeming to jettison rhetoric. I made my song a coat covered with embroideries out of old mythologies, from heel to throat, but the fools caught it wore it in the world's eyes as though they'd wrought it. Song, let them take it, for there's more enterprise in walking naked. Yes, uh, um, a slightly graceless poem, don't you think? I mean, the fools they caught it, at least presumably he's referring to the people who bought his books and enjoyed them. Yes, but he needed that. That's what. That's one of the aristocratic things that he needed was to feel superior to those who consumed his poems. Um, and that's not... I mean, Tennyson had the same thing, uh, you might say. Poets may be a prone to that. But this idea of somehow being adversarial was really crucial to Yeats's sense of himself. Count, countercultural, if the culture that you find yourself in is at some level deeply Philistine. Yes. Yeah. He hated, particularly, it has attacks on Pordine, mm. as he calls uh, in a rather derogatory fr- uh, phrase. Lower middle class, pretty bourgeois, Catholic Irish are often the targets of his poems. So he's trying to create, in that sense, an Irish tradition which doesn't, in many ways, suit Ireland as it developed. Uh, after independence, that that it it didn't really it didn't really look very Yeatsian, to be honest. Ireland in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, but he was okay with that because it meant he could attack it and isolate himself and present himself in his tower as somehow finding what he calls befitting emblems of adversity, and that all his symbols are somehow ways of uh, enacting or shoring up or performing his own resistance to the filthy modern tide, as he calls it in the statues. Now, you mentioned Ezra Pound uh, a moment ago, and one way of interpreting Yeats's career, I suppose, would would be to see that encounter with Pound uh, as being uh, life-changing. One of the most extraordinary things that Yeats does, I suppose you could say, is to largely abandon that early voice that we've been talking about, the voice of the Lake Isle of Innisfree and, and other poems like that, under the influence of Pound, who Yeats recognises as being, as it were, a voice from the future. 
and a little bit like um, Auden, maybe. Yeats's career sort of hinges, doesn't it, around this decision to remake himself in a, in a, in a different kind of voice and a different kind of idiom with a, with a different set of preoccupations in some ways. He first meets Pound in 1911, and as you say, 1913-14, he's spending a lot of time living with Pound in a in a cottage, stone cottage in Sussex. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pound is sort of giving him tutorials in being a modern poet, isn't he? And not being a kind of fin de siècle Celtic twilight poet anymore. Yes, it's a modernity, though, which is sort of saturated in the past. You talked about his plays and how static they are, and that, that was their shared interest in no drama, in Japanese um, traditions of drama. And the idea of the Yeatsian mask is similar to the Poundian notion of personae. And that certainly the Celtic twilight aspect of Yeats drops away. Um, and Pound is crucial to the way he reformulates his idiom and makes it more modern and much harsher and more direct and less twilight. And Pound was kind of presiding over the, the end of the 90s-ish verse of such as Swinburne and, uh, and Simmons and Dowson and so on. But also politics shot... I mean, the way the world is going shocks him out of it. One of the... Um, obvious, probably Yeats's most powerful, greatest poem. If I had to choose a desert island poem, I would probably choose Easter 1916, which I think is um, does something which... Uh, I, it's inexhaustible, Easter 1916, in terms of, of the power of its rhetoric. And also the extent to which he is res- responding here to the taking of the post office in 1916, which did change him as well as changing the people. It changed them more because they died. Uh, But it did change him as well and made him aware of how Ireland wasn't going to go on in a Celtic twilight, that that Ireland was on the cusp of some kind of uh, revolutionary movement that would generate independence in due course. And so that the stakes become very, very serious at this point. And that that the poem plays in between the extent to which he had thought that such a thing could never happen and his sudden realisation that it has happened and his his wondering what is my role in relation to this new Irish reality which is coming into being, into kind of mythological being with the uprising, which if it wasn't significant in a kind of military or political way immediately became the kind of cornerstone of the um, mythological narrative of Irish independence. Yes, absolutely. So, so the, um, the 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 volume that, as it were, after Pound has done his work, uh, reorientates Yeats in the way that you're describing. There is a volume called Responsibilities, which I suppose is a telling title. It means, I guess, amongst other things, that you have a responsibility to the political ideological world in which you find yourself. And the poem that you read a moment ago called A Coat is the penultimate poem in that volume. Isn't it? And the very last poem in that volume is uh, untitled, but it ends with this very striking phrase where Yeats says that um, all my priceless things are but a post the passing dogs defile. And Pound thought that finally, you know, all his work had come off. Yeats had cracked it and he'd entered poetic modernity. 
as I think Richard Ellman says somewhere, you know, an image of urinating dogs had finally brought Pound to his knees. Uh, <laughs> so that's, as it were, the um, the inauguration of this later this later Yeatsian voice. And it's entertaining things that are deliberately unaesthetic, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, like urinating dogs and, you know, excrement and other kinds of things are going to feature in the later mature Yeats. And I guess um, that what's featuring in Easter 1916 that you were just talking about so strikingly is it's a poem about current affairs. It's, you know, not, it's not a poem about Innisfree. It's a poem about something, well, it's not published till 1921. So there's a bit of a gap, but he writes it quite soon after the events that it's um, describing, doesn't he? Well, it, it's striking because it opens with this, this depiction of seeing these people who, who are then turned into um, become martyrs in the cause of Ireland as very ordinary people. So, like many Yeats's poems, it, it's concerned with the transfiguration of the ordinary, the everyday, the bundle of incoherence, as he once put it, it sits down to breakfast into something which is mythological and immortal as well and is transformed by some action. Some violent action transforms the ordinary into the mythological I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey, 18th-century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire of the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That's the first 16 lines of it. So this, well, how do you, when, when you are asked to, te- to explain what Yeats means by a terrible beauty is born, how do you approach that famous line? Oh, well, I suppose I, I resort to saying something rather lame, like it's uh, it's an ambiguity, isn't it? Uh, in that terrible, seems to be describing something which is ethically appalling, and yet beauty is describing something which is aesthetically wonderful. And so you get one of those moments that are quite common in, in the great Yeats, uh, aren't they, where an, an aesthetic judgment and a, and, a, and a moral judgment sort of crash into each other in this rather kind of confusing, but at the same time, you know, magnificent way. Yes, the conflict. Absolutely. Very good, Seamus. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I pass? <laughs> um, I think that, 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 that one, one of the things that Pound allowed him to do was the free play of this conflict within himself and to understand the extent to which, I mean, he liked the idea, the, the Blake idea of contraries, that these contraries were what created the poetry. And um, he famously said, out of our quarrels with others, we make rhetoric. Out of our quarrels with ourselves, we make poetry. Absolutely. And that the poem is quarrelling. A terrible beauty is born is, is a line that's quarrelling with itself. And that's where it's kind of, in, in which its greatness lies. And the, the extent to which he embeds himself as the poetic historian of these events, he actually sort of makes us see it at the end. I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride. And McBride, of course, was the person who'd married Maud Gone and mm. then had a child with her and also beat her up. Um, terrible guy. Uh, and he was the one who's done most uh, um, bitter wrong to one who is near my heart. But he writes it out nevertheless. I write it out in a verse. And we can see it. Yeats writing this. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, 
are changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. Wherever green, obviously referring to Irishness. So th- this is a poem that that is sort of in the crucible of the moment in which Irish nationalism is coming to a new stage and these are the martyrs for it. And Yeats is honest about his own ambivalence about it, that while Maud Gone embraced violence, he was profoundly disturbed by it, although many of his poems have a kind of violence in them. Uh, And as he got older and wilder and acted out a bit more, uh, he could be somewhat irresponsible in his use of violent terms, as I think it's Seamus Dean points out in one of the pieces, that there is something slightly distressing or disturbing about the late Yeats's uh, banding around of, of visions of violence. But you think of his great poems, Leader and the Swan, for instance, violence is implicit in this moment of change. And that could be seen in the kind of um, decolonizing context which Edward Said uh, outlines, that that for nationalism to actually be successful, it has to be violent, and that to, to ignore that is, is to be pussyfooting around. Yes, Dean says rather brilliantly, doesn't he, in his piece, that Yeats didn't like violence, but he quite liked the idea of violence. And I suppose, in a way, what you're seeing in Easter 1916 is, is an idea in the sense of you know an imaginative version of violence. But I think the greatness of the poem, and I share your admiration for it, the greatness of the poem is it, it never quite loses track of the, of, as it were, the real blood and tears historical violence that lies at the heart of the myth that it's creating. It's got that, well, again, as Dean says in, in, in the other piece to which I've referred already, it's, a, it's at once able to imagine something transcendent, but at the same time keeps its foot in the, in the world of, uh, you know, of real things, in this case, historical things. And, and the world of violence, as you say, absolutely is something which becomes increasingly preoccupying for Yeats, isn't it? There's a, there's a terrific essay by Michael Wood in the London Review of Books where he talks about Yeats's increasing kind of a, a obsession with, with what Yeats himself called the murderousness of the world. And I think that is a very powerful element, isn't it, in, in Yeats's imagination as it develops in these very, very turbulent and troubled times in Ireland between uh, the uprising and then the uneasy truce and the Anglo-Irish War in 1921 and then the civil war that follows hard upon that truce in 1922. Which was when he moved back to Ireland um, uh, and became a, a senator. But up until then, he'd been, you know, this period, he's living in Oxford, isn't he? Or, or uh, after he marries Georgie, they, they moved to, in 1917, they live in, they live in Oxford on Broad Street. Uh, and he roams around the Oxford countryside and, and uh, admires it. But yes, that line from Easter 1916, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart, is one of those unforgettable lines, which does justice to both sides of the argument, um, that the sacrifice is there, but it also means that you lose your humanity in the, in the process, or uh, when may it suffice. And then he starts talking about historical events, you know, home rule. Um, England may keep faith for all that is done and said and so on. This was because home rule had been um, deferred during the First World War. But uh, it, it's um, sometimes the violence is, is detached to take up the idea of violence from any particular political context in something like The Second Coming, which was a poem that um, 
whose third line, things fall apart, uh, is the centre cannot hold, has been taken as a kind of, you know, uh, since Chinua Achebe used it in his, his 1959 novel, uh, Things Fall Apart, has become a kind of almost a, a credo for um, anti-colonial forces. But there's no sense in the second coming in which the violence is not is, is happening in a sort of mythological sphere, in its own ozone, as Seamus Heaney put it in, in um, his brilliant essay on um, Yeats, not in fact in the LRB, but I recommend it nevertheless. Um, but those famous opening lines, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's a, a ferociously anti-Christian, or I should say perhaps ferociously non-Christian poem, isn't it? This is a second coming where, you know, the, the return of divinity in some way to the world just brings greater crisis and catastrophe, or so it seems. Now I know, he says, that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. I mean, it must be one of the most savagely kind of parodic inversions of Christian hope that any poet has ever risen to, I should think. It's somewhere where his modernity as well is really to the fore, that this was responding on one level to the Russian Revolution and the, the violence unloosed by that. But if you look at the drafts, he took away all the specific references as he rewrote it and he made it much more uh, happening in, in some uh, unknown sphere uh, so that it's it's happening in its own world rather than in the political world as you get in Easter 1916. But it's the same analysis or diagnosis of convulsive violence which is transforming things. And that transformation is um, overwhelming um, and it finds its poet in Yeats, that Yeats's uh, vision, apocalyptic vision, in some ways does seem to accord with the 20th century history of the first kind of four decades four and a half decades of the century, um, at least with a horrible, horrible power. And so this notion of some antichrist figure, if that's what it is, this rough beast, how, how do you explain the rough beast? No, no idea what the rough beast is, but it's, it's certainly um, amoral in some way. Yeah, yeah. The political context for that poem, although it's uh, largely um, omitted in, in the final version that gets printed, it is quite important, isn't it? Because we must must remember that around this time, Yeats actually is a political figure. Um, I mean, extraordinarily, he's he's a, a appointed a senator in the uh, the new Irish Free State Parliament. He's a figure of international reputation by now, isn't he? 1923, he wins the Nobel Prize. So, you know, the sorts of things that Yeats is saying about current affairs, about, you know, life and art and history, these are, you know, newsworthy things for him to say. And he's also, at the same time, simultaneously going in quite a different, much, much more esoteric tradition, um, esoteric uh, direction. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago his eccentric book called A Vision, and, and we should at least say a word about that, I guess, shouldn't we? Um, so he marries um, George Hyde Lees, who seems an extraordinarily sane, emotionally intelligent woman uh, who's extremely good at managing 
uh, Willie, he purchases this medieval tower in Galway called Tor Balili, where he goes and lives like a almost like a kind of caricature artist in an ivory tower, except in this case it's a, an old medieval masonry tower. And George starts um, writing kind of in a kind of strange kind of seance-like way um, and transcribing what uh, supernatural voices from from the other side uh, want her to write. And Yeats devotes vast amounts of time, doesn't he, to writing up all these scattered notes and improvising on them and creating this kind of all-inclusive vision of all human history and publishing it, admittedly to begin with, in a, in a limited edition. But then he does bring out a trade edition later. So a very odd dichotomy between his engagement in real-life politics, speaking in the Senate and trying to influence you know, Irish politics, you know, the design of the currency, all that kind of stuff on the one hand, and on the other hand, delving into these extraordinarily abstruse kind of esoteric mysteries. I mean, she was also an, an adept or an initiate in, in mystical circles. They, they'd been in these um, these esoteric circles. She she was also, he'd, he'd met her through the, those, or he didn't meet her that way, but, but, but she participated. So she wasn't a thoroughgoing sceptic, but she did admit later to Richard Ellman that it was a bit of a fake, <laughs> that she, he was very, very distressed on their honeymoon. He didn't, she was 27 years younger. He's 52, she's 25. He's still acting out he's in love with Maud or Isolt or both and he's proposed to both of them not that long ago and been turned down again so he's marrying her on the rebound so to speak she thinks this is never going to work how can I create some sort of intimacy with Willie so she tries automatic writing and it works and he is he is um falls for it hook line and sinker then she's also said that it wasn't that fake, that some, you know, her unconscious was unleashed in some ways. And she'd read so much of his poetry that somehow there was a kind of Yeatsian aspect to her automatic writing. So it's a kind of collaboration, I think, quite an interesting, an interesting way. And we, we have touched on the extent to which Yeats did collaborate with people, though we get this vis- vision of him as the solitary, embattled, lonely, last romantic in his tower. Uh, incidentally, the tower did have a thatched cottage attached to it. So it's both the Norman Tower and the Irish thatched cottage in one sort of fused together. And of course, she was, Georgie was, um, had, had her own independent income. All that money goes on doing up Tor Valley Lee and kind of putting, um, trying to making it habitable and it but it gets too damp in his rheumatism so he has to leave it but not before he has written the tower which is his greatest volume i think yes 1928 the tower comes out and it shows i suppose apart from other things a continuing interest in the state of ireland there's a, an extraordinary sequence isn't there called meditations in time of civil war also, it shows Yeats's continuing ability to transform contemporary political violence into extraordinary mythological forms with a, a poem called Lader and the Swan, which is one of his masterpieces. But also, one of the things in a vision is that he isolates these particular moments in human history where because of you know a happy um, uh, necessity of the historical process, what he calls a unity of being has been achieved. And one of those places is medieval Byzantium. And he writes the um, opening poem of the, the tower, which is all about sailing to Byzantium, which is, I suppose, in a way, a little bit like a rewrite of going off to the Lake Isle of Innisfree, except now you've invented a new mythology in which to talk about your willed decision to leave behind one kind of reality and to embrace another kind of, of reality. 
I, I think it's an amazing poem, Sailing to Byzantium, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things that the tower uh, is, it, the ways in which it's different stylistically, is it's... It, absolutely extraordinary brilliant use of the stanza that these poems are made out of of stanzas often octava rima or, or what's uh, another one the cowley stanza um, which he uses in prayer for my daughter but but also in some of the tower poems and that yeats's long exploration of these stanzaic structures is really really bearing fruit in this book that the rhymes and off rhymes he often uses off rhymes are amazingly brilliantly handled in such a way that the poetry has a, a command a commandingness an authority a power even when he's talking about not such grand themes as Byzantium so that and he also manages the sequence very brilliantly in poems like The Tower or um, Meditations in Time of Civil War so this idea of piecing together a poem using different stanzaic structures and that in this sense The Tower is probably his most embattled um, book but it's also one in which he does the opposite of what the modernists did which was uh, enact the fragmentation around them by breaking down their lines to weep as he puts it in Lapis Lazuli The Wasteland or The Cantos are very fragmented, collaged poems with lots of different bits and voices in them. Yeats's are much more an assertion of the will. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born and dies, caught in that sensual music all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. Yes, and, and that importantly introduces one of the defining themes for the later Yeats, doesn't it, which is the fact of ageing. He, he becomes uh, temporality in the, in the in, and in especially the ways in which being a temporal creature impacts upon your physical capacity becomes one of the recurrent themes of the poem. So just picking up on where you left off and sailing to Byzantium there, it goes on, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. Uh, the, the deliberate um, sort of tattered ugliness of the, of the portrayal of age, I, I think is terrific, is magnificent. But in a way, the stylistic event in that stanza I'm almost always most struck by is the word therefore, which is a word you would never have got in the early Yeats, is it? That, that whole kind of ruminative Celtic twilight Yeats had no room for words like like therefore. Um, and again, the, the deliberate act of will, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come. Uh, and it, it, in a way, it's a poem which is complex in its in its imagery, uh, especially when we get into Perny in a gyre, which is, mm. takes a a bit to a, of unteasing, which we won't go into now. It just means unspool in a kind of circular motion um, in a nutshell. But the, the idea is it's the relationship between non-art and art, mm. um, that there's a young who are having sex and, and uh, he's an old man, like a tattered coat upon a stick, and therefore he will transcend the merely physical and remake himself as a kind of artwork by sailing to Byzantium. Um, and you then get this incredibly elaborate and powerful vision of Byzantium itself with this drowsy emperor. And it's, it's impossible to parse, I think, the last stanza or to, to make an entire 
prose version of it, what one gets is a vision of an archaic, ideal artistic world in which the poet is on his golden bough <laughs> singing to lords and ladies. So again, the aristocratic notion, uh, which was so important to Yeats of Byzantium, uh, and then a summing up or a fusion of all time of what is past or passing or to come. So this is the world beyond time, beyond being a tattered coat upon a stick and somehow one is then made of gold and can sing forever. It is a kind of high romantic ideal in that sense, isn't it? But it achieves a, a wholly kind of modern and authoritative and compelling, unforgettable uh, articulation in, in this poem and, and in Byzantium, the later, rather more complex, but sort of similar sort of poem about, about the ideal art world, which he can transform himself into and show himself transforming himself into it as well. Yeah. And the whole private mythology of Byzantium, as we were saying, comes out of his visionary writings. But you can get the poem without knowing much about the visionary writings, can't you? You can read it, as William Empson used to say, like a science fiction story right. about going off to Byzantium and what you find there. Not that he ever went to Byzantium, but he did go to uh, Ravenna. And he used to hang out. Uh, he used to spend quite a bit of time in the 20s in Rapallo with Ezra Pound. Pound yeah. um, as, as well, though, um, uh, I think he would show Pound had soured a bit by then. I think Yeats showed Pound some of his works, and uh, Pound replied, "Putrid," <laughs> the one word, <laughs> quite harsh. Not the highest praise, maybe. No. Um, but it was in in the twenties when when he was often uh, and in the thirties when he was quite ill. Often yeah, throughout lot, the thirties, yes. he was really ill. But he wrote. I mean, the, the greatest phase of of along with that of possibly Sir Wallace Stevens, I suppose. But the greatest phase of a twentieth late phase of any twentieth century poet, uh, surely in in the last the poems that he wrote, writes in the twenties and thirties, which transcend the, the the kind of political in some ways, but they still keep referring to it. But the the, the idiom that he develops, the rhetoric, gets more and more... I suppose compelling is the only word. I mean, I've been reading this stuff for, like you, for 40 years now, and it is embedded in one's imagination, isn't it? That Yeats' lines stick in the imagination, and he can be very addictive. Um, Philip Larkin once compared the effect of Yeats. Uh, he said his style can be as pervasive as garlic. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, and that he, his own early volume, North Ship, was very indebted to Yeats, and he would go around quoting, when such as I cast, cast out, out remorse, remorse. <laughs> so great a sweetness flows into the breast. Uh, and uh, it, it is very addictive, and even if you don't quite understand it always, it is addictive because it you become an initiate into this esoteric world of his rhetoric, of his language, of his symbols. It's a kind of version of high symbolism in that sense, taking over from the French and reconfiguring them according to both his own poetic mythology and that of Ireland. Because I think when we looked at Innisfree, it's the extent to which his own cultural narrative and that of this ideal Ireland are intertwined, mm. that he has fused them so that his narrative does become exemplary in some ways of the ideal Irish artist, or that's certainly the, the, the impact that it can have on the reader. So we should come to an, a, a close, I suppose, by thinking about some of those poems of the of the 1930s, Yeats's ageing 
bodily um, illness, accompanied, as you say, by this extraordinary kind of imaginative resurgence, including a, a huge kind of poetic interest in in bodiliness and 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 the fact of you know humans being embodied rather than being sort of wispy, dreamy, dim things as they often were in the very very early Yeats. But also, I suppose we ought to add into the mixture a continuing interest in violence that we were talking about before. And especially, I suppose, and you've alluded to this already, some of the um, more disconcerting ways in which a violence of rhetoric or, or a violence of subject matter can get into some of those very late poems. Yeah, the violence is often referenced for him to transcend it, mm. uh, as at the beginning of Lapis Lazuli. I've heard that hysterical women say they are sick of the palette and fiddle bow of poets that are always gay. For everybody knows or else should know that if nothing drastic is done, aeroplane and zeppelin will come out. Pitch like King Billy bombles in until the town lie beaten flat. So that's what it's only hysterical women who get caught up in everyday events such as a town being bombed. So that's quite a big deal. Um, but the poet transcends these. But it's the act of transcending which is enacted in poem after poem. And Lapis Lazuli is a superb example of that. He looks at the stone with the Chinese uh, two Chinamen on it and behind them a third uh, carved in Lapis Lazuli. And art offers this way of transfiguring all that dread and it ends with the paying attention to their eyes mid many wrinkles their eyes their ancient glittering eyes are gay uh, this notion of gaiety of somehow the poet's spiritual ebullience or ability to recreate himself imaginative energies just pure imaginative energies overcoming all that stands in their way the triumph of the will <laughs> to use unfortunately a, a, a sort of a somewhat Nietzschean phrase but Nietzsche was someone he read extensively yes, throughout his life one of his enthusiasms yes that's right it can take a, a slightly more um, tendentious and perhaps um, disturbing form, can't it? That opposition of the perfection of art versus the imperfection of mere life. I'm, I'm thinking about that quite late poem called The Statues, which seems to um, contrast what he calls in a brilliantly ugly phrase, the filthy modern tide of our lives, um, with all what he calls its formless spawning fury. This is what's wrecking us. And set against that is the mathematical Pythagorean perfection of a kind of ideal classical statue. And there, I mean, you can see he's pushing this kind of antithesis between the imperfections of life and the perfections of art to a to a kind of deliberately provoking extreme. Yes, he was interested in, in eugenics in this period as well. In, in Under Ben Bulban, he talks of the baseborn products of baseborn beds um, and this filthy modern tide with its formless spawning fury has something of, of the disdain of the masses, which one finds in, in other modernist uh, poets such as Eliot and Pound as well. But it's always form which will defeat. It's form which will defeat this filthy spawning formless spawning fury, um, this idea of the plummet measured, this ideal of form. And he would talk, he talked to me of free verse and he would turn on you in rage, he would say, uh, that form was somehow and style were ways of resisting, rejecting, keeping out modernity, democracy or the, the masses, uh, popular culture uh, and to believe in one's um, aristocratic ideal. And yet in his, he could also be more humble and, and moments 
as in a coat, he could somehow chuck away his rhetoric and say, I'll, I, all that was a mistake, <laughs> a bit like King Lear. And I think King Lear was the model that he was using mm. in, these, in these last um, poems to some extent. Um, so the circus animal's desertion has a very famous final stanza in which he somehow muses on his entire career uh, and then rather than locating the sources of his imaginative power in visions of gyres or spiritual transcendence, uh, he gives you a, a sense of how the actual sources were in the um, grotesque grotesque aspects of the everyday. Sounds a good place to end. Why did you read us that? Those masterful images because complete grew in pure mind, but out of what began. A mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street. Old kettles, old bottles and a broken can. Old iron, old bones, old rags. That raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start. In the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.